Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders. <clears throat> In my sixth grade social studies class, whenever a kid would cry out that something the teacher did wasn't fair, Mr. Johnson would always quickly respond, Life's not fair. Then you get married, and it's really not fair. I'm not sure Mr. Johnson got his views on marriage from the Song of Solomon or anywhere else in the Bible for that matter. And I'd be uncomfortable expressing his sentiment in quite this way. But the longer I've been walking with Christ, the closer I've come to a different but related sentiment, which at first might sound even more disrespectful, but I assure you it's not. Life's not fair. Then you give up everything to follow Jesus, and it's really not fair. This could perhaps summarize the message of the book of Lamentations. In our sermon series on life, love, and lament, we arrive this morning at the third of four brief poetic books in the Old Testament that we're planning to cover. First, we taught Obadiah, and then the Song of Solomon, which just wrapped up last week. And so now after spending a few months amid the paradise and the pains of marital love, we now make a drastic shift to discuss the pain of suffering in our third book in this series, the Book of Lamentations. If you have one of the church Bibles, you can find it on page 641. It's a, a brief little book tucked in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Now, as I give an overview of the book this morning, I hope to help you hear the voices of those who have suffered terribly at the hand of God in order to equip you to hear this book preached over the next few weeks and to prepare you for those times when your life is hard and it feels unfair and it feels as though the hand of God is heavy upon you. Because the big idea of this book is that the agonizing pain of God's judgment would be impossible to bear if his covenant love and mercy were to come to an end. The big idea of this book is that the agonizing pain of God's judgment would be impossible to bear if his covenant love and mercy were to come to an end. You can see in your outlines, I'd like to address four questions this morning. When was this book written? How was it written? Why was it written? And finally, I'll end with some application. What should we do with this book? Let me pray for our time in God's word. Our Father in heaven, please help us as we study this book of laments. Open our hearts to 
to hear your word, uh, to hear your voice through the voices of these sufferers, and strengthen us for our time of suffering that we might cling to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First, let's start with when was this book written? The book of Lamentations begins without any sort of title or preamble. In verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. And as we read, we quickly discover that the city introduced there in verse 1 is the city of Jerusalem. And the people introduced there, the people that used to be in this city, are the people of Judah, the Jews. Verse 3 says that Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She now dwells among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. So we can pinpoint the date of this book with much accuracy. It was written either in the year 587 B.C., when the city of Jerusalem fell to the Babylonian Empire, or it was written very shortly thereafter. Why does this matter? It's because this book was written in response to the fall of Jerusalem to King Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian Empire. That moment marks the lowest point in Israel's history in the Old Testament. It is a low point that we sometimes pass by quickly today because it doesn't come in the the Old Testament with quite as much fanfare as the other stories, or or at least we, we tend to think that at times. But it is a crucial juncture in the relationship of God with his holy people, Israel. Way before this, in approximately 1400 B.C., Moses, the great leader of Israel, predicted what would happen. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, he predicted that the people would not be able to keep God's law and they would not remain steadfast in their devotion to him. And in chapter 28 of that book, Deuteronomy, God told them in disturbing detail exactly What would happen when his patience with them ran out? In that chapter, he speaks of bringing a nation from far away and destroying the people, putting a yoke of iron on Israel's neck. He describes how they would run out of food under siege and they would turn against one another in despair, all because they would not want to serve Yahweh their God said all that back in 1400 BC. And so when Nebuchadnezzar finally comes and wipes them out in 587, he is simply doing what God had promised would happen when they violated his covenant, his his relationship with them. And while the book of Lamentations mourns this terrible turn of events in Israel's history, it also recognizes that it is exactly what the people 
deserve. Look in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. Verse 9, therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. Now, despite how awful this situation is and how terrifying it must have been to experience, surprisingly, this book does not contain the furious ravings of a horrified and enraged people. It is remarkably guarded and careful in both its content and its arrangement. So let me now comment on point number two. How was this book written? The book has five chapters. And each chapter is a somewhat self-contained poem. And each of these poems, except the fifth one, are, is written as an acrostic, which sadly cannot come across in translation. Let me define this for you. What do I mean? Chapters 1, 2, and 4, if you look at them, they each have 22 verses. That's because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. This was written in Hebrew. And each verse of the poem starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order. That's what an acrostic is. The first letters line up. So if it were written in English, verse 1 would start with the letter A, verse 2 would start with the letter B, verse 3 would start with the letter C, and so on, and we'd have 26 verses. But they had 22 letters, so 22 verses. That's chapters 1, 2, and 4 that all do that. Chapter 3 puts it into hyperdrive. Chapter 3 has 66 verses because every three, every group of three verses starts with the same letter, but it, it follows the, the order of the alphabet. So again, if it were in English, verses 1, 2, and 3 would all start with A, A, and A. Verses 4, 5, and 6 all start with B, B, and B. So the acrostic is, is a threefold. It's tripled. Verse 4 is back to, or chapter 4 is back to the the normal acrostic. Each letter just occurs once. The poets who composed these poems thought very carefully about how to capture their sorrow. And they decided that the best way to do it was to present the A to Z, so to speak, of their suffering and their sorrow. Now, that's how each of the poems is arranged, but there's a progression over the course of the five poems as well. Chapters 1 and 2, as I explained, they have each letter of the alphabet you know, once at the beginning of the letter, but then there's three lines for each letter. So verse 1 has three main lines, and verse 2 has three lines, and so on. Chapter 3 has... As I said, it goes in the hyperdrive where each letter of the alphabet is repeated three times and we hit the high point of the book in this chapter, chapter 3. But after that, things deteriorate. You see, chapter 4 follows the acrostic format, but it has only two lines per letter. Whereas before that, they had three lines per letter. And then when you get to chapter 5, In the Hebrew, it drops the acrostic format altogether, so you don't get the A through Z. However, it still has exactly 22 lines. 
It's almost as though that fifth poem is only a hollow shell of the ones that came before. And everything hemorrhages and falls apart up into the book's final pathetic whimper. Chapter 5, verse Verses 21 and 22, the last two verses of the book. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. So the book does not end on a note of triumphant hope for a glorious future for these people. It ends with a heartfelt request in verse 21, but even that is almost immediately snatched back by the hopeless sigh of verse 22 that maybe God is no longer with them after all. The Jewish people have always recognized how depressing this ending is to the book. And so when they read this book publicly, as they continue to do annually, in early August, after they read verse 22 of chapter 5, they always repeat verse 21 again in order to end with just a glimmer of hope. So the point here is that this book was carefully crafted like a quilt patched together or maybe even like a bronze sculpture to memorialize the voices of those who went through this tragic event. It was intended for public reading among the people of God so they would not forget what it was like to suffer the curses of having violated God's covenant. And when the Jewish people read it now, on the day they call their Black Fast Day each year, they self-consciously do it to memorialize not only the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C., but they also use it to memorialize the second fall of Jerusalem to Titus and the Romans in A.D. 70, and also to memorialize the Holocaust under the Nazi regime in the 1930s and 40s. It was very difficult for me most of my life to understand why a people would want to memorialize and remember annually such terrible events on such a public basis until just a few years ago when my family took a vacation to washington dc and while we were there one site that we visited was the relatively new national museum of african-american history and culture It is an incredibly beautiful building. We thought it, it would be helpful for our family to learn more about African-American history, especially for our boys whom we adopted from Africa, for them to learn about the history of other Africans in our country. And it's, uh, when you first walk in, it's like a typical museum with lots of open space, bright light, and various displays. But when you walk through that door that marks the history segment of the museum, it, it forces you to get on an elevator and descend three or four floors underground. And when you get off the elevator, there are no windows, you're underground, there's very low lighting, and it's like walking into a cave. 
but it's the sort of cave where someone died because it's dead quiet and you can't help but whisper down there because that bottom floor starts telling the history of African Americans from the beginning. It tells the story of the earliest African Americans brought to this country against their will and forced into slavery under inhuman conditions. It feels like a funeral. But it's the sort of funeral where the silence shouts louder than you can imagine. And that silent shout shapes your perspective and changes you in ways you can't quite measure. It had to be the most moving experience I've ever had in a museum. And I don't think I'll ever forget it. I'd really like to get back there sometime when I have more time to take in the entire thing. But you see, whether you are Jewish or African-American or you've bumped into Syrian refugees or you had grandparents who were persecuted or executed by the Soviet KGB or you know people who have suffered in any of the countless ways God's people have suffered in every generation, including our own, you must give ear to the voices of those who have suffered because God himself does. This is one of the widespread failures of many people who haven't suffered very deeply. And I put myself in this category. We don't want to have to listen to those suffering voices any longer. We want to know when we can just set aside the pain and move on with life. And this is not acceptable for the people of God. The book of Lamentations reminds us that it is God's will for us to hear those voices of the sufferers. God himself chose to memorialize them in the scripture. And we all need to hear them and admire their persistent efforts to help us understand. Listening to them makes us more like God because that's what he does. So this gets me to my third question on this book. Why was this book written? And I'd like to answer this question with two metaphors, a megaphone and a bottle. First, a a megaphone. This book was written to provide a megaphone for your protest. As you can probably tell from the title, this book is a book of laments. And in the scripture, a lament is not merely an expression of grief, though it absolutely is that. But it's more than that. A lament typically contains a protest that these things we've endured shouldn't be like this. God, you declared all things good. Why is the world now rebelling against me? 
God, you declared us to be your people and you promised to take care of us. So why have our enemies gained the upper hand? And in the book of Lamentations, we have an entire book of the Bible functioning like a megaphone in the hands of protesters out on the street. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Regarding the enemies of God, the protesters chant in verse, in chapter 2 toward God, verse 16, All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. You see, this book is remarkable in that it hands the megaphone over to so many people. It captures the voices not only of the oppressed, but also the voices of the oppressors, the voices of the bystanders, and the voices of the indifferent. In fact, the only voice that is silent in this book is the voice of God. There's only one place where it could be argued that God speaks directly. It's chapter 3, verse 57. But it is altogether possible that in that verse... God is not speaking into the present situation. Instead, the poet may be recounting a prior encounter when God had spoken to him. And he's trying to remember that to give him hope. So please make sure you grasp the significance of this. God hands the megaphone over to his suffering people for this entire book. And he chooses not to speak into their suffering himself. Instead, he wants his people for the rest of time to hear the voices of those who suffered that tragedy. And because this book was included in sacred scripture, it is the word of God. That means that we hear God's voice When we hear the voices of these sufferers. Commentator Christopher Wright says that in this book, heaven is silent. Which does not necessarily mean that heaven is deaf or blind. God included this book in the Old Testament to communicate that he sees and he hears all That these people are going through. And though God is silent here. He does not remain silent forever. He will speak in response. To all they have been through. In fact. Even by the time Lamentations was written. God had already spoken the answers to most of these questions. In Isaiah. But before God draws attention to any of the answers. He declares the importance of first listening to the protests and suffering of his people. This book is a megaphone for the protesters. 
But you might wonder why he would do this or why we should go along with it. I mean, I already explained that these people simply suffered the consequences of violating their covenant with God, right? He predicted it through Moses. He told them exactly what would happen. They didn't listen and he kept his word. So why not just say they sinned, they abandoned their covenant with God. He destroyed them. Let's move on. Just don't abandon God like they did and all will be well. That gets us to the second reason why this book was written, which was to serve as a bottle. In particular, a bottle for your tears. A bottle for your tears. In Psalm 56, verse 8, King David took hope in God when his own enemies were crushing him. He said, You, God, have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And friends, I propose to you that the book of Lamentations is this bottle of God's set in place precisely to catch your tears. And he doesn't catch the tears just so he can put them on a shelf And forget about them. He catches them so that he can remember and repay every one of them. God actually makes it his business to surround himself with the tears his people weep in service to him. Let me explain how this works. In Lamentations. One fear of the people of God all through history was that they might get swept up in God's judgment on the wicked. In Genesis 18, Father Abraham poses the very question to God. He asks God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Won't the judge of all the earth do right? That's a big question. For God to be right, a righteous judge, he cannot sweep away the righteous along with the wicked. This was a big reason why the Jews had such a hard time integrating and being accepting of non-Jews. Because when God returns to judge those evildoers, it might splash on us and end up hurting us as well. So let's keep our distance. The book of Ezekiel wrestles with the idea, declaring that God will never punish children for the sins of their parents. He holds each person responsible for their own sins. But then comes 587 BC and Nebuchadnezzar surrounds Jerusalem and he invades and the city falls. And yes, this was what God promised would happen when the people violated the covenant. But not all of the people had violated the covenant. The prophet Jeremiah was there during the entire siege, calling the people to return to God and serve him. There were other faithful Jews like Daniel Ezekiel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who had already been abducted and taken captive to Babylon. There were certainly many more we're not aware of. 
So when Nebuchadnezzar wipes out the city, killing women and slaughtering innocents, it sure seems like an overreaction to some. And Lamentations bottles up the tears, not only of the guilty who deserve what has happened to them, but it also bottles up the tears of the innocent who are suffering along with the guilty. Part of this book's protest is the protest that you promised not to wipe out the innocent along with the guilty. But it sure looks like that's what's happening, God. When pregnant women are ripped open and innocent children starve in the laps of their mothers. So this book is not only about judgment on the guilty. It is also about the protests of the innocent or the bystanders upon whom God's judgment splashes. And God bottles up those tears so as to never forget them and that he may one day repay them. This book is a bottle for at least five kinds of tears. The first is that this is a bottle for the tears of loneliness. The tears of loneliness. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. This book bottles up your tears Tears. Of loneliness. Number two, this book is a bottle for the tears of sympathy. Sympathy, chapter 2, verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. This book bottles up your tears of sympathy. Number three, this book is a bottle for your tears of supplication. Your tears of supplication. Chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Their heart cried to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. This book bottles your tears of, of supplication. Number four, this book is a bottle for your tears of disbelief. Your tears of disbelief. In chapter 3, verses 46 through 48, all our enemies opened their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. This book bottles up your tears of disbelief. And number five, yes, this book serves as a bottle for our tears of repentance. Repentance. 
for our tears of repentance because sometimes we are the guilty and we deserve exactly what has come upon us. Chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. So why was Lamentations written? It was written to provide a megaphone to those protesting their suffering. And it was written to provide a bottle to catch and store forever their tears. Let me now end with some application. Some application, our last part of the outline. What should we do with this book? I have three closing applications. Number one, weep with those who weep. Weep with those who weep. That's what we should do with this book. Some of you already weep. And perhaps you've wondered whether there's a space for you to do that publicly or in church. And this book teaches all of us that yes, there should be that space. For all, allow this book to move you to tears that you might learn to mourn. Because one of the worst things about suffering is the terrible loneliness it produces, leaving us feeling that nobody hears, nobody understands, nobody cares. And God has given us each other not just to speak truth into suffering, but often simply to listen and weep together. Weep with those who weep. What should we do with this book? Number two, learn the vocabulary of protest. Learn the vocabulary of protest. Let this book teach you how to fight and fight clean with God. He invites your protest when things don't appear as he has promised. This book is not about impulsive, bitter rage. That's not what I'm talking about. This is about thoughtful clinging to the God who always keeps his word. And he is delighted when his people trust him enough to beg him to do what he has promised to do. This book can teach us how to do this. It can give us words for those terrible times when we just can't come up with the words for ourselves. So please learn from this book the vocabulary of biblical protest. And finally, what should we do with this book? Number three, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Just like every other part of scripture, this book is really all about him. Written in the wake of the devastation of 587 BC, this book 
represents the absolute lowest point in Old Testament history. As God's people bear God's wrath on their persistent sin and idolatry. Thereby, it also serves as a signpost showing us what hell will feel like. But at the same time, it shows us the humiliation and the suffering of the Son of God on the cross for sin. In this book, it is as though time freezes at the cross, at and after the cross, and we are stuck in those three days between the death of Jesus and his resurrection. We're in that time when Jesus himself says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then his followers weep, for we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And now it looks like none of God's promises are going to come true. It is tempting to skip the sadness, to sweep aside the confusion and pain of what Jesus endured to accomplish salvation. But when Lamentations chapter 3 verse 1 declares, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath, we can't help but hear the words of Pontius Pilate, which he spoke about the humiliated Jesus in John 19.5, such that the I am the man of Lamentations 3 becomes, Behold the man. John 19. So as you read and as we preach, allow yourselves to be moved by the pain and suffering within this book. It will help you to remember Jesus Christ. Or if you don't yet follow him, it may help you to see him for the first time. The one who endured all this to make you his own. And though we now still suffer under God's mighty hand in ways we can't always understand, life seems really unfair. You become a Christian You have big hopes, but then you face disappointment after frustrating disappointment and suffering after greater suffering. And Lamentations teaches us that the agonizing pain of God's judgment would be impossible to bear if his covenant love and mercy were to come to an end. But thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ, who himself for our sins upon the tree. Please pray. <clears throat> our Father in heaven, Lord, life is hard. It often seems unfair. We are so grateful to you for this book that you've given us to show that you care what it's like to go through this, that you 
you are not deaf or blind. You see, you hear, you understand. In fact, Lord Jesus, you came and you lived it. You were the man of sorrows under the affliction of God's wrath. Thank you for doing that for us so that we would not have to face this forever. Help us to hold fast to you, to come to you with our protest in wise and biblical and mature ways as we beg you, O God, to keep your promises. Jesus, please come quickly. Make us all unified and one. Please wipe every tear dry. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.